Turn with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. It's right at the end of that chapter. This will be where we will begin, and there will be several others that we're going to look at this morning for uh, our theme. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today to read your Word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and give us understanding that they would be more than just black and white words on a page, but we would understand them, comprehend them, that they would penetrate us as your word, that they would cut to our hearts, that we would see how we are called to live because of what you have done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. This is the first of three, for lack of a better term, past uh, Sundays we are going to deal with an introduction into our topic, and I'll explain more about that in just a moment. And it's designed so that over the course of time, you, as you come in and out, you'll, you'll understand uh, the greater theme and the, the purpose, but also each Sunday should be able to stand alone as portion of the Word of God and application in our lives. So the year is 1756, Hanover, Virginia, and a slave asked Presbyterian minister, William Davies, he said, I come to you, sir, that you may tell me some good things concerning Jesus Christ and my duty to God, for I am resolved not to live any more as I have done. Sir, I want to be a Christian. Well, Reverend Davis wrote down those words and, and, and a, as a reminder, and later the brothers John and Frederick Work adapted them into a hymn that we're going to sing in just a few moments. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. The next verse, Lord, I want to be more loving in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be more holy in my heart. And the final verse, Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart. Now these are not the words of a non-believer, a non-believer attempting to figure out the state of his or her heart. These are the words of a believer who wants to live like Jesus, who wants to live in a holy fashion, a believer who wants their lives to be determined by Jesus Christ, by his word. How can I live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? Now, we understand that the non-believer's heart is not spiritually enlightened. When they read the Word of God, a non-believer does not understand it in the way that we do unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens their eyes. They just don't understand it. A non-believer does not want 
to be a Christian in his heart or any other portion of his or her being. He may like, an unbeliever may like certain aspects of Christianity. They may like that what they see in our lives, the, the compassion or the generosity um, or the faithfulness. They may like those things because it may appeal to their sinful natures in some fashion, but they do not want Christ. Christ has to come and collect them. The believer, on the other hand, the one whose life has been transformed by the finished work of Christ, must have Christ, cannot have anything else as the highest desire within their heart. But to be a Christian, to live out the word of God, and to be more loving, to be more holy, to be like Jesus. But this is where we run into a problem. You think, oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, I, I like that. But the problem is my heart has been changed, my eternal destiny has been changed, and I have an inheritance that is kept for me forever in heaven, and it cannot be taken away. And I can now read the Word of God with Holy Spirit enabled and understanding, and, 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 but my sin still keeps me from a full grasp, a full knowledge, a full experience, a full application of what the Word of God says and what the Lord has for me. Remember, sin no longer reigns, but it remains. For the believer, sin is not, our, uh, not in control of our lives, but enough of it remains in our life to mess us up. Okay? So this is a tension that the believer finds in, in, in each of us. I want to be a Christian. I want to grow. I want to live out and produce holiness in my redeemed state, but not, it's not yet perfected has time to go yet. And I remind you that the live out and produce are the key words there. I want to live out and I want to produce holiness in my life. It's not enough to hold views of Scripture. It's not enough to think ourselves better than the non-believer. It's not enough to know the Word of God. We must live out the Word of God. Our lives must be different than those around us. Just saying, well, I'm not like the non-believer who's out there out there doing something else today therefore I am better than they are and closer to the Lord ah the proof is where in the living out how does the believer live a holy life hence we begin our series on holiness now I remind you that this was Two years ago, we started all this, and I sent out a survey, and I said, what is your greatest personal spiritual need? And overwhelmingly, the congregation sent back to me personal holiness. It was, it was overwhelmingly. Um, and, and so this is where we go. This is what I studied on my sabbatical, and this is where we're going for the unforeseen future. Okay, Personal holiness. And you think, well, how long can we spend on holiness? Well, until we get it right. Okay, so, so um, you know, and we're not going to get it right until we are before the Lord. And we'll make progress on it, and, and, and hopefully over the course of our lives. Here's the day you became a believer, and, and your justification is secure. Your, your place with the Lord is secure because Christ has secured it. But our sanctification, our holiness kind of goes like this and like this and like this and like this because some weeks we really got it going on and other weeks we're, we're just we, we, we don't even want to talk about it but over the course of our lives it should be an upward chart of holiness 
we should look more and more like Jesus. That's the way that the Christian life should be like. So let me start by saying that outside of Scripture, I found no better resource on the topic of holiness than the book of J.C. Ryle. His title is Holiness. You can buy those on, online or wherever. He wrote this classic work on holiness to address a crisis surrounding the doctrine of sanctification at the end of the 19th century. Uh, J.C. Ryle lived from 1816 to, to 1900. And what was rising up was known as the Keswick Movement. The Keswick Movement that had a real, we had to describe it kind of a passive, well, you know, let, let go and let God form your holiness. Which is not that bad, except it became a passive holiness in the Keswick movement to the point where they weren't going to do anything they were just going to wait for God to come and make them holy for for God to come and change their heart they had lost the the understanding of scripture that says go and pursue holiness go and find it go and desire it go and purposely live out holiness so Ryle wrote that we must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of believers' sin. He does more. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. We've heard that before. We've sung that song. Ryle's book was written over a hundred years ago. And, and I have read or studied pretty much every book that's out there on personal holiness, and there's just none better. When I came back, I, I, I went to the Presbyterian meeting, all these other ministers, and they said, oh, Randy, you're going you're gonna to write a book now on what you've been studying? And I says, I can't, I can't write a better book than what J.C. Ryle wrote. Okay? Well, well what should I study if I, if I want to know holiness? Go, go read Ryle. It's just the best that's out there. So you can guess I'm going to quote a lot from him over the next season. Now, one would think, you, you would think, that the reason for the pursuit of holiness would just simply be a no-brainer for us, right? I mean, we, we, we understand this. This is what God's Word says, so I must, produce, I must chase after holiness. I must desire it. But unfortunately, for some, it's just not that cut and dry. The issue which presents a major problem, now the major problem, the first major problem is whether I want to do it or not. It's always a question of my will. As we pursue sanctification or holiness, I'm going to use those interchangeably, we have the work of the Lord. What did Philippians say? He who began a good work in you will complete it. The Lord will be at work in the believer's life. But who is the other part of that equation? Well, it's me. Now, the Keswick movement said, well, if the Lord's going to complete it, I don't have to do anything, right? No, that's not what the rest of Scripture says. Okay? The rest of Scripture says you have to be about the things of Christ. You have to be about doing what the Lord calls you to do. He has prepared things for you to do from before the foundations of the earth. You are now to do them in Christ, in your growth in holiness. So outside of my will, the major issue that we face is a question of what is truth. You think, well, how does this apply to holiness how can the question of what is truth apply to holiness and we've talked about this problem in in the larger section in society and even in the church um, but see if we are declaring that God's expects holy living for those who are his 
then we are admitting that God has set a standard for the Christian life. And he is giving us access to that standard in his word. And if he says this is the standard for holiness, then we must take it as absolute truth that God has given us this standard so that we will live it out. Now, probably for most of us, it's, it's not a big issue. But there are plenty of people out there who don't see it that way, that they have a problem with an absolute truth, even if it is laid out for us in Scripture. They feel uneasy with such a cut-and-dried approach to truth, and therefore they are drawn to a more relativistic form of holiness. You go, oh, Rand, what's a relativistic form of holiness? Well, if truth is relative to my situation, to my life, to how I understand it, well, therefore, holiness might, must be relative to my situation, uh, to my understanding, to my life. So, therefore, each of us could have a different level of holiness that we think is good. Ooh, but, if we say that absolute truth is here and God's word is absolute truth concerning our holiness and our spiritual life, then what I think is a good level of holiness may have no basis in scripture at all because i can go well you know i'm holier than so i'm good who do i point to elijah i'm holier than elijah so i'm good right oh that's not the way that it works not the way that it works a relativistic understanding of holiness without an absolute standard that means that my view reigns and my view is good now think of the world out there who looks at us. Now, this is the non-believing world, and they look at us, and they say, well, I'm not going to church because the church is full of hypocrites. And our response is, there's room for more. Okay, come on, there's room for more. But but we're hypocrites because we hold to an absolute view that, that this is true, and God wants us to live this way. But we understand in the larger picture, because sin remains in our hearts, I'm going to fall short of the standard that God has for me. And, and, you know, but over the course of my life, I will sometimes do better, I will sometimes do worse. But I trust that by the time I'm 60, 70, 80, that I will be more and more like Christ. It's, it's like if you take two tapers, okay, tapers, candles, sorry, um, and you light one in a dark room, and you bring them together. The closer they get, the one that is unlit seems to shimmer with the light of this one. And that's the way the believer is supposed to be. The closer we get to Christ, the more we are to shimmer and reflect Christ's likeness in our life. Now, some people, you know, either because of their personality or their, their temperament, you know, every believer is a saint. But we all know some real saints, don't we? Okay, we, we know the people who are really saintly, and, and, and when we grow up, we want to be like them because they reflect the things of Christ. Well, this, you know, the world out there looks at us and says, well, you've got an absolute standard, and you're a bunch of hypocrites, and, and I don't really want to be part of you. Well, the problem is because we're defining an absolute standard and we're attempting to live at it, understanding we're going to fall short of that, and they go, well, I can find others who don't define it in that way, and I like them better because I fit in that, that circle better. Because it's not absolute. It's relativistic. 
Whew. Let me give you some examples, okay? Um, this is written from what I, w- I will just call a relativistic evangelical, and he would probably state that as well. Christians of all persuasions agree that lifelong faithful partnerships are desirable. Now, there may be less agreement, however, about whether such partnerships must be a sanctioned marriage. The concept of living together without a marriage ceremony has become an accepted social norm. Many of those cohabitating are professing Christians who claim to be as deeply committed to their relationship as any formerly married couple, perhaps some even more so. Now, in that example, we find a self-defined profession of faith, but without any sense of obligation to live according to a biblical standard. Biblical standard is not cohabitation. I hope that's not a shock to you, but it's not, okay? It's only defined according to their view if it's a relativistic understanding of holiness. If it's a relativistic understanding of holiness, then they're good, Okay? Yeah, I can be a profession, professing Christian, but I can live in what I don't view as sin because society says it's okay. So I'm good with it. Ooh. If humanity becomes the definer of holiness, then there is no holiness. Along with ignoring certain biblical expectations, Christians often judge sanctification by personal or inaccurate measures. Let me give you some of those. Some people are judged to be holy if they have worldly accomplishments, okay? If they're healthy and wealthy, if they're well-educated, if they've overcome adversity, you know, we might look at somebody and go, well, he's demonstrated success in these areas of his life, so he must be blessed by God. Some people are judged to be holy if they are a certain age and gender, You know, the old white preacher must be holier than the tattooed video game player, right? No, not necessarily. They're judged to be holy if they talk about religion. If they talk about religion. Well, he sure talks about religion and theology a lot. He must know a lot. Mm. Have you ever talked to a non-believer who knew more about certain passages than you did? Now, some are judged to be holy if they have plenty of raw biblical knowledge. There are plenty of believers out there, non-believers out there who have a lot of raw biblical knowledge. Ever had a JW knock on your door? Oh, man, you've got to be ready because they know their topic. Or a Mormon, they know their topic. Okay. And I remind you that when Jesus came along, who knew exactly who he was? The demons knew. Okay, the demons knew who he was. The apostles, the disciples, uh, they had some idea, but the demons knew who he was. But it didn't change their life. Some are judged to be holy if they publicly demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit. Some people think, well, he speaks in tongues, where today she said she heard directly from the Lord in her quiet time. So who am I to argue with those things? They must be holier than I am. Now that list is drawn from actual studies of how people in the church view others who are spiritual in their minds. We see how inaccurate or even dangerous an assessment of holiness using those metrics could be. 
Another survey, Lifeway, uh, you know, the, the bookstore research found that 38% of Protestant churchgoers agree with the statement, my church teaches that if I give more money to my church and charities, God will bless me in the same way in return. Ooh, in the same way. That means more and more evangelicals are now judging holiness by how much stuff you have, how much money you make, um, how, how healthy you are, all those metrics, all of those. Even worse, consider if that was the metric that we used for being an elder. Oh, that's not what Timothy and Titus says are, are the, the standards for eldership. The Bible offers a very different way of determining growth in sanctification. Okay, so open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to give you a head start. We're going to get there in just about uh, a minute. So when we look at Scripture to determine how growth in holiness, growth in sanctification, what it looks like, some of the things to look for in those who are growing in godliness. I've got a list here. Um, uh, Some of the things to look for in those who are growing in holiness, growing in godliness, conforming their life to the things of Christ. Now first is that they live out the fruit of the Spirit. Remember fruit of the Spirit is singular even though it has nine things. What are the nine things? Um, peace, patience, goodness, joy, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, I, I can never, you know, self-control. It's that's the one that I don't like. Um, but but you see the person who's growing in holiness manifesting all of those in their life to a greater degree. And you say, well, I only got eight of those. I didn't get that self-control gift. Yeah, you did. You just have to exercise it. Okay, so people growing in holiness exercise the fruit of the Spirit. People who are growing in godliness regularly use the means of grace. Now, the means of grace, they're making use of Bible study, of prayer, of the sacraments, of corporate worship. Uh, They're using those to help them grow in their knowledge and understanding of the Word of God and of how God wants them to live. So third, those who are growing in godliness show or demonstrate a readiness to repent. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So those who are growing in grace will grow in humility, will understand the importance of repentance, and and, and as we'll see, will hate their sin more and more and seek repentance of their sin. Next one would be a... Uh, and for lack of a better term, I, a demographic holiness. And that goes back to our chart that you saw here in my hands. The longer you're a believer, the more holy your life should be because the more chance you have to grow and to apply the things of Scripture. We can expect holiness to be seen in degrees in the believer's life. The believer who has only been a believer two months 
we, we don't expect that level of holiness as someone who has been a believer for two years or for 20 years. Think of Paul as he writes to the Corinthians. I mean, they came out of just the most pagan of societies. You had the Temple of Aphrodite up on the hill. Every sailor felt that they had missed out if they didn't get to the port of Corinth on their trip because they couldn't go debauch themselves up on the temple. Okay, That's where the gospel went to. And, and they're struggling with how, how do I live out this in the midst of this life? You know, two months ago, I was going up to the temple on a regular basis. Now that Christ has changed my life, uh, I, I don't do that. But, you know, the, the desire, the draw is still there. Well, the longer you're a believer, the more holy your life should be. Okay? Next, the longer you're a believer, a demonstration of holiness requires a hatred of sin. Romans chapter 8. Let's go over to there. Romans chapter 8. It always, holiness always involves a growing hatred of sin. First and foremost, the sin right here. My own sin. Okay? Because it's so easy to go, well, you know, I'm seeing sin in your life, and I hate that. No, no. What, what? For, what's in my eye? Okay, I can see the speck in your eye, but I get this log in my eye. Let me take care of this log. I, got, I have to hate the sin in my own life first. So Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have to put to death the deeds of the body. We have to hate the sin here. Paul says, what? Who will deliver me from this body of death? How can I stop this sin? Why is it that the things I know I shouldn't do, I do, and the things I know I should do, I, didn't, I, should, I don't do? You got it. I got to hate sin. I gotta hate sin here first. The last one is the person growing in holiness will grow in a love for and obedience to Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Now it isn't a love for morality. Don't mistake that. A love for Christ and a love for obedience to Christ is not a love for morality. Non-believers can love morality. We love Christ. We love the things that Christ calls us to do. Growing love for Jesus and a desire to obey Him in all things and in all areas of our lives. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and we observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not a list of do's and don'ts that we go, oh man, what I messed up today, I'm just dying under this load. No, no, no. It is a joy to keep his commandments. Will we fall short? Yes. Did you fall short this week? Yes. 
For whatever is born of God, verse 4, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There's a popular song out today. Do you love the Savior more than the saving? Do you love the healer more than the healing? See, so often we want the benefits of being a Christian, and we love the benefits of being a Christian. But in our hearts we have to ask, do I love Christ most? Is that where the love of my life is? These other things are great. I love the salvation. I love the Savior more. I've been burdened with this pain for years and years, and I'm healed of it, and I love the healing, and I rejoice. Do I love the healer more than that? If the Lord never heals me in my pain, will I continue to love him and obey him and live for him? Do you desire the giver of good gifts more so than the gifts? Do you desire Jesus more than anything else? These are the types of questions we have to wrestle with if we're going to honestly pursue holy living in our lives. Okay? Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. We're pretty close over there to Hebrews. So the Bible's picture of sanctification in a believer's life is complex. It is beautiful at the same time. It is unmistakable. Charting holiness in our, per, in our personal life. It says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We go about it. We know the Lord will bring it to completion, but we are to work it out each and every day and also in the lives of others. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12, 13, and 14. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, in falling away from the living of God, the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it, is, as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our insurance, if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance, assurance firm to the end. While it is said today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me relative to the Old Testament there. The living out of a Christian life in our personal life and in our corporate life as believers is essential and it requires an absolute truth and absolute principles for each believer and for each local church. A relativistic understanding of truth or holiness includes an open rejection of the biblical doctrines that we hold dear the moral certainties that we hold dear from the Word of God. So they turn into, if you're going to have a relativistic holiness, then the Word of God has to be uh, symbolic, it has to be situational, uh, and how convenient it must be to have a worldview like that. How convenient it must be that, that good can be defined by each individual. So, so let's think in your mind's eye, envision a Christianity that's free from all claims of absolute truth. Picture in your mind's eye a Christianity that's liberated from, from the Bible's restrictive moral commands or severed from any claims of revealed truth. Just think if we could free ourselves from a God-imposed standard and then live under a Randy-imposed standard. And I can tell you, my standard will not be as rigid as a totally holy and righteous and just God standard is. 
So which one do you want, me or the Lord? Hey, uh, we'll take the Lord. We'll take the Lord. To view holiness as relative, you have to reject biblical doctrines such as the atonement, the finished work of Christ. The Old Testament, the Lord says, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It is a command from the Lord that we live in holiness. We have to then, 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 then look, you know, if you, if you relativize holiness, then you're good with saying that you have an immense respect for the Bible and you are committed to discovering its place in your life while at the same time you're moving away from an inerrant word of God, a absolute for holy living, and now you're moving towards a personal belief in what holiness is, a personal definition. See, if you're relativistic, you can have one hand here and one hand over here in the world. And that just won't do. It just will not do. Now, we in this room, that may, relativistic holiness, may be the, this might be the first time you ever heard it, and I hope it is. If it's not, maybe you've understood it better relative to the word. But each of us will have to overcome a variety of obstacles if we're going to strive for holiness. Okay? Here are some. We have to remember that holiness is both individual and it's corporate or congregational. Okay? And that worldly measures of success do not necessarily represent signs of holiness. Remember? Oh, the, the, the old white preacher's got to be more holy than the tattooed video game player. No, that's not necessary. Numbers, age, offerings, personal wealth, personal happiness, standing in the community, these are not guarantees of holiness. There's a standard that is set. It is found here. It is not found out in the world. In fact, those standards might be the very things that are keeping us from the holiness the Lord expects and wants from us. Secondly, we have to remember that Christian doctrine is not tied to, to any politics in any fashion. The biblical worldview is not based in pragmatics, and more often than not, it is actually stands against what, so much of what happens out in the world in politics. We can't say, well, we finally got a godly guy as our representative. Uh, it's just a guy, okay? Just a guy. We typically operate in politics on the Hegelian model. Thesis, antithesis, Synthesis. Scripture usually doesn't work that way. God said it. Well, I say this. Lord, can't we meet in the middle on this? No, we can't. <laughs> he says, I said it this way. This is the way it is. Come over here. That's how we shape our lives. We have to remember that this country isn't a theocracy. Our presence here doesn't immediately make us any holier than anybody else. Those of you who have been to the DR, you've seen holy living in people who have nothing. Nothing. We must remember that as believers, we are called to engage the culture. I mean, it's, it's frankly, it'll be easy to talk about holiness in this room. But we've got to go outside. And that's where we have to engage the culture with what we learn. Social sciences, natural sciences, music, art, philosophy, news media... All the expressions of our culture are to be influenced by the holy living of believers. How can salt influence the world if it stays in the shaker? It'll never get on your stake if it stays in the shaker. 
It'll, you'll never get a pinch of salt in that cake to enhance the flavor if it stays in the shaker. It has to be poured out. It has to be demonstrated. We have to remember, lastly, that we are stewards of our time, stewards of our stuff, of our children, of our jobs, of our spouses. The Lord gives us these things and people and responsibilities for His purposes and glory. We can't let them become barriers to holiness, but we have to understand them as what the Lord has given us stewardship over. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord himself Okay, look, look, at, look at verse 11. Now may our God, Father, Himself, and Jesus, our Lord. Five titles there. Five names there. This is important. Okay, that's one of those signs it's important. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you. Paul is saying he wants to get there. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. That's the Lord bringing it to completion so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. In holiness. Paul is saying that it is going to be impossible for us to grow in holiness apart from the Word of God, apart from the Lord, apart from the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can go and cultivate holiness in our private devotions and in our private life. But the Lord says that's not the end. You can cultivate it, you can grow in your knowledge and things, but you have to apply it. Some days you'll apply it well, other days you won't apply it so well. It has to be lived out in the community. We have to take the holiness that we understand from the Word, digest it into our lives, and go out and live it. He says, I want your love to increase and abound in order that you might grow in holiness. The Lord says, I want you to be godly. I want you to grow in the things of holiness and this is going to mean that we're going to have to think the best of others even when we're tempted to think the worst of others we're going to have to assume that their motives are good and are pure because they want us to grow in holiness they will have to think the same thing about us because the world out there if we look just like them if we live just like them but we go to church they're going to say you don't have anything for us you say you believe in this gospel. You say your life's been transformed. But you don't look any different than me. But if our lives are different, if there's a holiness, if there's a sweetness of Christ in our lives, then they have something to listen to. So do you want to grow in your faith and love and holiness? Yes, your answer is yes here. Okay, That will require a deliberate commitment to the absolute truth of God taking it in, digesting it, and living it out. And to ask the Holy Spirit to increase and abound our love toward the Lord and to others before ourselves. This is just the first step in our journey of holiness. So let's pray. Lord, this is such an important topic it is seen throughout the entirety of Scripture. 
how believers are to be different. And Lord, the danger for us is we, we, we forget this. We don't take it seriously. We, we think we're holy. But the question is, do our lives really reflect that in all areas? In the coming days and weeks and months, Lord, help us understand, one, how as a church we might demonstrate holiness and how we as each individual believer might demonstrate holiness in our lives, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our children, how we treat those we work with, how we treat our neighbors, that we might in our personal devotions fill our hearts and minds with your word so that we can live it out, so that when the world looks at us, they see Christ. They see the things of Christ, mercy, compassion, joy, graciousness, a a willingness to stand on what is right according to your word. Lord, these are all of this. This is tall tasks, Lord. But yet you promise. You started the work in us. You will complete it. We are going to trust in you and we are going to pursue you with all that we are so that our lives might demonstrate a Christ-likeness that you might use our lives to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to all we come in contact with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.